This is a special edition of the Sufi Reverberations podcast. Rather than presenting a story, poem, essay, and a musical interlude, the following program gives expression to one episode of a multi-part editorial entitled The Essence of the Problem That Lies Before Us. This commentary is a critical reflection on the nature of the problem which underlies the existential circumstances in which we are entangled. One can provide an overview of sorts for the present commentary, namely the essence of the problem that lies before us, through the following preamble. Any form of public policy, including health, gives expression to a species of religion which government officials are seeking to evangelically and forcibly impose on other individuals, i.e. citizens. No one, not governments, whether federal or state, and not individuals, can be shown to have a right under the U.S. Constitution to establish the foregoing sort of religious perspective. The First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution states that, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. There are at least three questions which tend to arise within me when I read the foregoing words. Once those three questions have been asked and answered, and this will require some time to properly address even in the form of an overview, a new perspective will be introduced that might prevent us to critically engage much of what is transpiring today in the United States, and in fact has been taking place in America since, if not before, the Philadelphia Constitutional Convention of 1787. In short, the three questions that are to be asked and answered in the following exploration will serve as a staging area from which to launch an analysis that I believe will give expression to a very clear understanding concerning what the essence of the problem is with which we are confronted and which is adversely affecting virtually every aspect of our nation and as a result has been leaking into the world like some form of toxic waste release. Let's begin constructing the staging area for the subsequent analysis by noting, as stated previously, that the First Amendment begins in the following manner. Quote, Congress may make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. End of quote. Nothing is said in the foregoing wording about the executive or judicial branches of the federal government. And since both the president, through, for example, executive orders, as well as the judiciary via, for instance, the setting of precedents, are considered to have the capacity to issue edicts that supposedly carry the weight of law despite being done through extra legislative means, then one wonders whether or not either the executive or judicial branches has the authority to establish religion or prohibit its free exercise thereof. Thus we come to the first of my three questions. Although Congress is constitutionally forbidden to make laws 
involving either the establishment of religion or the prohibition of the free exercise of religion, nevertheless should one conclude that the wording of the First Amendment is such that it leaves open the possibility that the executive and judicial branches are, in fact, entitled to issue executive orders or render judicial decisions, respectively, concerning either the establishment of religion and or the prohibition of the free exercise of religion. A second question also arises in conjunction with the foregoing considerations. For instance, although the following sentiment remains unspoken in the federal constitution, nonetheless one might wish to argue that if the notion of a centralized form of legislative activity, for example Congress, is explicitly prohibited via an amending process that required state ratification from establishing religion, then this would appear to serve as a prima facie case in support of, if not constitute a precedent for, the idea that the right to establish religion or prohibiting its free exercise thereof should also be denied to non-federal forms of lawmaking activity as well such as, for example, the legislative assemblies of the various states. Consequently, another question, a second one, tends to emerge with respect to the First Amendment's pronouncement on religion, and this question emerges primarily because of what is not said by the Establishment Prohibition Clause of that amendment. In other words, does the aforementioned prima facie case involving Congress serve as a precedent with respect to whether or not state legislatures should be forbidden, as Congress is, to make laws concerning an establishment of religion or to make laws which prohibit religion's free exercise thereof. Finally, a third question that arises in conjunction with the Establishment Clause of the Constitution's First Amendment has to do with the nature of that to which the word religion refers. In short, what is the character of the phenomenon or concept with respect to which Congress is being constrained for making laws concerning its establishment or prohibition? As far as the first of the aforementioned three questions is concerned, i.e. whether the executive and judicial branches of the federal government can establish or prohibit the exercise of religion, Perhaps the best place to begin critically reflecting on matters is to engage the last of the original ten constitutional provisions that collectively are referred to as the Bill of Rights. More specifically, according to the Tenth Amendment, quote, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people, end of quote. If one consults the pre-amended Constitution, one learns that there is nothing in that text which specifically delegates any sort of explicit power to either the executive or the judicial branches with respect to the, quote, establishment of religion, end of quote, or, quote, prohibiting its free exercise thereof, end of quote.
In addition, given that the colonists had already fought an eight-year war of independence from 1775 to 1783, in order to liberate themselves from not only the English Parliament's arbitrary forms of taxation and its problematic modes of representation, or lack thereof, but as well fought such a costly war in order to extricate themselves from the tyranny of monarchical rule. The framers of the Constitution were not inclined to replace one form of monarchy with another, in other words, the executive office. And consequently, a great deal of care was taken by the framers in order to make sure that this branch of government would not just be a reincarnated form of monarchy, which had the power, among other things, to summarily and arbitrarily impose a given kind of religion on citizens. For example, according to the Constitution, the primary executive power of the president does not consist in a capacity to pursue whatever national interests he, she, or they consider to be important, nor does such a power entitle the president to lend support to or protect the purposes of corporations. Rather, the primary responsibility of the president is to, quote, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, end of quote. The Constitution has delegated authority to the executive to serve as commander-in-chief of the Army, Navy, and the militias of the several states. However, such authority can only be used to carry out the functions to which the President, prior to assuming the duties of that office, has sworn to faithfully execute, namely, to, quote, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, end of quote. The President also has the power to make treaties, as well as appoint ambassadors, both of which are to be executed in conjunction with the advice and consent of the Senate. In addition, the President has been granted the power to appoint, quote, public ministers and councils, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not otherwise provided for, end of quote, by the Constitution, quote, and which shall be established by law, end of quote. Notwithstanding the granting of all of the foregoing powers, there is nothing in the aforementioned discussion which indicates that either the President or the treaties and appointments that are made with the advice and consent of the Senate or any of the other appointments that are made by the President have the capacity either directly or by proxy of appointment to either establish religion or prohibit the free exercise thereof. Indeed, such treaties and ambassadorial appointments, as well as other appointments that, quote, are not otherwise provided for, end of quote, by the Constitution, but which nonetheless are a function of the laws that are made by Congress, then since the First Amendment states that, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, end of quote, 
then the treaties and appointments that the president makes are also constrained by the First Amendment, since those treaties and appointments must be done in accordance with the laws that Congress has passed. Furthermore, while some of the following themes will be explored in greater detail a little further along in this commentary, one should also point out that since appointees to the Supreme Court must be done in conjunction with the Senate, and as well since all other inferior courts that from time to time might be ordained and established also arise through the activities of Congress, then none of the courts can serve as vehicles for establishing religion or preventing the free exercise thereof because Congress shall make no laws respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And by implication, this also applies to whatever courts, supreme or inferior, that are made possible by the laws that Congress makes. In whatever way the power of the Supreme Court or other inferior courts may, quote, extend to all cases in law and equity, end of quote, and in whatever manner the Supreme Court is considered to have either original or appellate jurisdiction in law and fact, what the courts can and cannot do is constrained by the way in which their activities are entangled with and to varying degrees are a function of the deliberations of Congress. Consequently, the federal judiciary cannot be engaged either directly or indirectly in decisions, rulings, or judgments that establish religion or prohibit its free exercise thereof. So the clear answer to the initial question that was raised in conjunction with the First Amendment would seem to be that not only is Congress to be constrained from making any, quote, law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, end of quote, but as well, the Constitution does not assign any specific powers to the executive branch or the judicial branch, which clearly indicate that either of those branches has the right or power to issue, respectively, either executive orders or judicial rulings that constitute what in effect amounts to processes of making, quote, law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, end of quote. Furthermore, one might presume that due to the absence of any explicit powers concerning the establishment of religion or its prohibition having been assigned to either the executive or judicial branches by the Constitution, such a lack of authority should hold irrespective of how one characterizes the meaning of the word religion. However, this is a presumption to which we will return during the discussion, which occurs a little later in the present commentary, and which will address the previously noted third question concerning the nature of religion. This brings us to the second of the three questions that were alluded to earlier. Given, as previously stated, that the Tenth Amendment stipulates how any, quote, powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved 
to the states respectively or to the people, end of quote. And given, as previously stated, that the Constitution has not delegated specific powers to any of the three branches of the United States government concerning the establishment of religion or prohibiting its free exercise thereof, can one assume that, therefore, the Tenth Amendment has assigned states the power to make laws concerning, quote, an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, end of quote. The initial answer to the foregoing question can be stated in the following manner. Given that the Constitution has not assigned to any of the three branches of federal government the specific power to make laws, executive orders, or judicial rulings concerning the establishment of religion or the prohibition of its free exercise, and given that the Tenth Amendment specifies that whatever powers have not been assigned to the United States are prohibited to the states, are reserved for the states or the people, one cannot necessarily assume that the power to establish religion or prohibit its free exercise has been reserved to the states. To be sure, certain powers, in other words, those that have not been assigned to the federal government or prohibited to the states, have been reserved for the states or the people. Nonetheless, nothing is said in the Tenth Amendment concerning A, what the nature of those reserved powers might be, or B, what the method will be for the lending specificity to such reserved powers, or C, how those reserved powers are to be exercised or realized by either the states or the people. That is, whether such powers will be exercised by the states and the people in concert with one another, and if so, then how, or whether those powers will be pursued by the states and the people independently of one another, and again, if so, then in what way. Some individuals might wish to argue that the use of the phrase, quote, the states respectively, end of quote, together with the term, quote, or the people, end of quote, are just different ways of referring to the same thing. However, such a view does not seem to be tenable. To begin with, if one were to suppose that the use of the terms, quote-unquote, states and, quote-unquote, the people, which appear in the Tenth Amendment, were intended to convey the notion that the two terms are merely different ways of alluding to the same referent, then the process of mentioning both, quote, the states, respectively, end of quote, as well as, quote, or the people, would seem to be rather repetitious and unnecessary. This sort of excess verbiage seems to be at odds with the wordsmithing predilections that tend to characterize the individuals who put the Constitution together. Consequently, one is inclined to suppose that the reason why the foregoing terms are mentioned so closely together is intended to suggest that each of those phrases should be understood as indicating that both references are, to varying degrees, related to, as well as independent of, one another. The foregoing idea that the notion of, quote, the people, end of quote, is a concept that should be considered somewhat apart from, if not independently of, the concept of, quote, 
unquote, states tends to be reinforced by the Ninth Amendment. In other words, before even noting that states as well as the people are entitled to an unspecified set of powers which have been reserved for them under the Tenth Amendment, the Ninth Amendment acknowledges, rather than grants, the principle that the people possess rights beyond those that have been enumerated in the amended Constitution, and such rights cannot be denied or disparaged simply because they are, for the moment, unspecified. Moreover, the significance of the word, quote, retained, unquote, which appears in the Ninth Amendment, is to acknowledge that the people have the right to hold on to that, namely certain rights, which they already possess independently of the Constitution, and which will not be affected by anything that exists in the Constitution. If one were to suppose that, quote, the states respectively, end of quote, as well as, quote, or the people, end of quote, were merely different ways of making reference to the same entity, then why risk misleading anyone by mentioning only, quote, the people, end of quote, in the Ninth Amendment, while mentioning both, quote, the states, end of quote, and, quote, the people, end of quote, in the Tenth Amendment? For example, one would like to know why both of the aforementioned amendments just don't speak in terms of either, on the one hand, quote, the states respectively, end of quote, or, on the other hand, quote, the people, end of quote, in an exclusive fashion in order to substantiate that the same referent, whether states or the people, is being identified in each of those amendments. The people, not state governments per se, voted during the process of constitutional ratification. This tends to indicate that, quote, the people, end of quote, have a standing with respect to the issue of rights and powers that exists apart from the notion of states. Presumably, one of the fundamental reasons why Congress was precluded from making any, quote, laws respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting its free exercise thereof, end of quote, is because this is one of the unspecified but generally acknowledged rights that is retained by the people. As such, and in accordance with the Ninth Amendment, this would be a right that cannot be denied or disparaged simply because it does not appear among the enumerated rights that are mentioned in the Constitution. The Ninth Amendment addresses the people. States are not mentioned in that amendment, and therefore there are no unspecified rights which have been retained by the states which cannot be denied or disparaged simply because those rights do not appear among the rights that are enumerated in the Constitution. Furthermore, as indicated previously, although the Tenth Amendment supposedly reserves powers for the states or the people, which have not been delegated to the United States or prohibited to the states, the Constitution has nothing to say about what the nature of such powers are, only what they cannot be. Moreover, the Constitution has no authority to say how such unspecified reserved powers should be divvied up between or understood by the states and the people, because in effect, the Tenth Amendment declares that powers which are not assigned to the federal government nor prohibited to the states 
effectively fall outside of the jurisdiction of the federal government, just as the unspecified rights to which the Ninth Amendment is alluding also fall beyond the jurisdiction of the federal government and perhaps as well the state governments. Part two of the essence of the problem that lies before us will be available for listening or downloading sometime within the next week, that is, at some point in the first week of September 2020. So, please stay tuned. From the outback of Australia to the rainforests of South America, from the frozen tundra of Siberia to the plains of Serengeti, from the Himalayans of Asia to the white cliffs of Dover, from the geysers of Yosemite to the glaciers of Antarctica, you are listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcasts.